The Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by GoToWebinar, web events and online meetings made easy. Visit GoToWebinar.com and start your free 30-day trial today. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jansen. My guest today is Chip Keith. He is the Thrive Foundation of Youth Professor of this is a mouthful. Organizational behavior in the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. That just means he's really, really smart. That's way too long. <laughs> but he's also the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book *Made to Stick*, and we're going to talk about his newest book today called *Switch: How to Change Things When Change Is Hard*. So, Chip, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, John. So we talked, I don't know, was it two years ago when uh, when Made to Stick came out? And, uh, it's so, probably uh, been three years three at this years. point. Wow, well, crazy. Well, uh, you've done well because you certainly still see lots of references to that book. So it, is, it has stuck, okay? That's, so that's pun for the day, right? <laughs> All right, so new book, Why a Book on Change. Is, is, is change a new subject? Is change an evolving subject? Change is, I mean... When I write with my brother Dan, and so when Dan and I were talking to people that got excited about a book on sticky ideas, what we found is that very often the ideas that they were trying to stick in their organization or in their community or in their in their home were ideas about how we ought to change. And and so it eventually occurred to us, look, there are a lot of things about change that are not just about changing people's ideas. And so we talked a little bit and made the stick about how do you change the way that people are acting. But there's all kinds of research on, you know, how people can diet and how people can change big bureaucratic organizations or how people as an entrepreneur can become more nimble at serving the customer. A lot of those literatures we just couldn't get into in Made to Stick. And so we thought this topic about change is really is really interesting and deep and meaty. And that's what got us excited about researching and writing the book. Well, I think we talked when we were off air uh, about the fact that, at least my impression when I read Made to Stick, it, it felt very much like a pure business book. Um, and actually, Switch, as you just alluded to, um, maybe is for a broader audience. I mean, change is something that somebody who has a bad habit you know, maybe needs to address. Obviously, organizations uh, try to change, and we'll talk about some of those. But uh, was that really the intent, uh, or, or did it just occur? I mean, it did, did it just happen that the subject of change is universal? I think the subject of change is universal, and so what Dan and I get excited about doing when we do research is finding consistencies across different domains of ideas. And so in Made to Stick, it was consistency across urban legends and what makes them sticky and what makes marketing campaigns effective when they're effective and what makes political ideas catch on. In Switch, when we started looking at change, there are great literatures on, you know, how do you die and how do you convince yourself to save more for retirement? But those literatures don't talk to the literatures on organizational change. So how do we create a great organization and change people's habits in the way that they're selling or the way that they're marketing our products? And those literatures don't talk to their you know, whole books written about save the world kind of topics. So how do we reduce poverty or reduce malnutrition? And what we would do is we would actually read across all of these literatures. And when we found a principle that seems to be true, across all those literatures, we said, this is true, this is useful, it's useful in lots of domains. And so we would love it if people read the book and found things for their personal life as well as their business life. There are 
countless stories that you use to, to help illustrate the points in, in this book. And um, I, think, I think everyone would agree that people learn through stories. It certainly makes the reading more interesting. Um, why don't you share a couple of your, I, I know that you do, you and your brother both do a lot of work in, uh, obviously, in uncovering these stories. But that's few I'd heard of, many I had not. Um, so uh, I wonder if maybe you'd share, particularly, you know, my audience, small business folks, a couple of your your favorite stories that you like to, to work with to, to help illustrate some of the bigger themes in, in Switch. Well, especially for you and your audience, I, I thought about a couple of stories that we found in workshops that I haven't told in the book, but I think are really perfect for the small business audience. So one principle that we found over and over again in looking at the research on change is starts from the idea that we are predisposed or wired to think about problems. So if you talk to sports fans after a weekend of football games, they're going to dwell on the, the games that their teams lost more than they spend time analyzing the games that their favorite teams won. If you, you know, have a conversation with a friend about a relationship, odds are it's a conversation about something that's going wrong in the relationship and not a conversation analyzing, wow, things are going really right. What's going on that's right? Well, yeah, even, and, in, even in a win. Uh, yeah, we won by 20 points, but we turned the ball over 10 times. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we, we managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of any victory. Because that's the way our minds analytically are kind of wired. But one of the principles that we found across domains that seem to work in change situations is, especially in a change situation, there are lots of things going wrong. And you could easily waste your time analyzing those things instead of focusing on what's going right. And so, for example, I was talking to a small business owner that owned a construction firm, and they make big, big buildings for, you know, very often public use of libraries or fire stations, but they might also build church buildings for churches. And he was really wanting to expand his business and grow the business. And he was really frustrated because they just kept bidding on projects, and they, they didn't win the bids. And so I asked him essentially the opposite question, which we call in the book looking for a bright spot, looking for the current successes. And I said, think back, and can you describe the characteristics of the last three things, the last three good jobs that were really good for your firm? They were profitable. You did a good job for the client. What were the last three things that you won? And he he started thinking about that seriously. And over the course of the next 10 minutes, what he realized is that the jobs that they were winning were not the big marquee jobs that he had been bidding for in trying to grow his firm. They were jobs in typically smaller, medium-sized towns, and especially jobs that there was some kind of political dynamic where the members of the town disagreed about what they wanted in the fire station, or the members of the church had some disagreements about what they wanted the new building to look like. And it turned out his firm was really effective not only at constructing buildings, but at managing interpersonal relationships among people that didn't quite agree on what a new project should look like. And as he talked, he got, you know, his shoulders kind of went up, and he, he, he started smiling as he thought about the winds. And What's amazing about that situation is here's a person that had a really critical set of skills that he could have been leveraging and looking for new business, but he was going in and competing with lots of other firms for generic big public works administration where the skills of this firm weren't giving him a competitive advantage. 
And, and I think the challenge for all of us is to take that great analytical capacity that we have, that we often use for focusing on problems and trying to fix problems, and devote it to analyzing why are we succeeding. So in our personal lives, there are forms of marriage and relationship therapy that instead of trying to figure out, you know, why are you and your spouse feuding? You know, what's, what is it about your history and your upbringing that led you here? They say, when was the last time you managed to have a discussion about a critical issue like finances or raising kids, and you didn't argue? What were the characteristics of that event? And if you understand those, then you can have, you're more equipped to do those things in the future. So this principle of looking for the bright spots, I think, is a really powerful idea, and it works both in a personal context, but especially in a business context as we're looking to expand or grow our business. Well, I, I, I think there's no question we're, we're either wired that way or through habit <laughs> be, uh, become that way. And I think, it, I think it actually could be a filter that you could use really in every sort of problem-solving situation. Um, let, and, and let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you spend, I don't know, maybe the first half of the book um, outlining really uh, why change is hard. Um, and, and I wonder if you could share, you know, a couple of the, of the reasons or the problems that people encounter when they are trying to make a change. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we found when we started reviewing the psychology literature is we often complain that, that people resist change, that people, you know, hate change. And yet every day people are signing up for really big, profound changes. So everyday people get married. Everyday people have their first child that they apparently are looking forward to. And yet, if you think about it, how many of us in a workplace context would sign up to work for a boss that phones up four times a night for trivial administrative duties? You know? And yet, that's what you're signing up for when you have a new baby. And you know the changes don't stop as the kid grows older. And so we started thinking about, well, why is it that sometimes we approach change and sometimes we run away from it. And it turns out that the research in psychology says that at a very deep level, we're schizophrenic about change. There may be part of our brain that says, wow, I want a great beach body for the summer. But another part of our brain really wants that Oreo cookie. And so in a personal change situation, we're of two minds about change. And then we come to the workplace, and part of us says, we need to shift our strategy. We need to be calling on different kinds of customers. But another part of us is very comfortable with the routines that we've established with the language that we've used for calling on our existing kind of customers. And so there's this tension set up in our brain. And it turns out that tension is very draining in a very real way. So if we've, if we've tried to work through these situations where we're resisting the Oreo cookie or we're trying to have a, a different way of calling on clients at work, it turns out that that's physically and emotionally draining in a very concrete way, that self-control and the ability to manage ourselves in a new situation is, is kind of a limited resource, and we can use it up. And so so is, that, is that kind of like when you decide to go on a diet, all you can think about is donuts? I mean, that's what's kind of it, at work exactly. there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when, I'm, when I'm sitting here, you know, suppose it's a technical sales force and we're trying to shift them from selling, you know, the boxes, the hardware that we've been selling to selling solutions to clients, Every fiber in their body is trained to automatically go back to the hardware solution. And so if we're trying to retrain our technical sales force to sell solutions to customers, that's going to be a difficult struggle. So it's not that people are resisting change. It's that part of them really understands that there is a need to change, and part of them has a hard time because they're overcoming lots and lots of deeply ingrained routines. And so in order to... Re- to kind of reconcile these two sides of ourselves, we find things that like 
you know, getting the emotion right is really important. That, you know, it's going to be easier for us to stay on the diet if we post a picture of ourselves, you know, three years ago, uh, back when we had a, a better version of our body. And every time we open the refrigerator to grab the, the cookies or the, the sweets or the ice cream, we see that picture of ourselves. Similarly, in an organizational setting, if we're trying to change the way that we're working, looking for the bright spots is a really strong motivational technique. So rather than just saying intellectually, oh, we really need to shift, say, you know, we did a little bit of that on this project or with this client, and look at how well that worked. And all of a sudden, we're aligning those two sides of our brain because analytically we know we need to shift, but also on that deep emotional feeling level, we're also feeling like we're the kind of people that could make that shift. You know, it's funny, though. Some of it's just information, too. Going back to your uh, your contractor, uh, you know, I think if somebody were able to put on a spreadsheet where they made their money, you know, where they got their wins, where everybody was happy, the kinds of customers that turned around and referred them, I think sometimes in, in some cases, you know, it's kind of slap on the head obvious, you know, why are we wasting our time over here? And, and I wonder sometimes it's just a matter of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly right. And so the tool of you know, focusing that brilliant analytical capacity that we have on analyzing the right kind of data is really useful because, you know, this guy was obsessing and using his analysis to focus on the times that they lost and mm-hmm. speculating what they could have done differently in those proposal situations. And all I did was shifted him a little bit to analyzing the spreadsheet of the wins. You, you have a, a concept, well, there's two concepts, really, um, that, that we'll probably end up having to finish up on, but uh, uh, you, you use the... the uh, somewhat brilliant metaphor of the writer and the elephant uh, uh, to, to really kind of talk about what's going on in, in our heads. And I wonder if you could kind of outline what that is. And then the second one I want to come back to is, is your concept of the destination postcard, which I love too. Yeah. So the elephant and the writer is just a, a very visual way of thinking about this tension between the analytical side of our brain and the emotional side that falls in love with routine or does things by impulse. And it's a metaphor by a guy named Jonathan Haidt that teaches at the University of Virginia. And he says, look, you know, if a human rider is riding on top of an elephant, it may look as though the human is in control, that the rider's in control. But in any direct contest of wills, if the rider says, I want to go here, and the elephant says, I want to go somewhere else, the rider's going to lose. He has a six-ton weight disadvantage. (laughs) Yet we often think that in making a change, all we have to do is to appeal to that analytical rider side of ourselves. It's like we, we spreadsheet out, you know, here's the new strategy, here's the profitability implications of that strategy, we're done, and yet we've got these, you know, trained elephants that have spent years pursuing another strategy, and so it's, it's really critical to bring that side of ourselves along in a change effort. And so, you know, appealing to the feeling side and the passion side of people is going to be an important part of making successful change. The, now, tell me a little about this destination postcard uh, concept as well, because I, I, I really that to me is works as well. Yeah. So the destination postcard is a way of thinking about you know we talk about big, hairy, audacious goals, and in a lot of cases in organizational life, those are very successful. We pick out a big goal and it motivates us to aspire to be different, but. In a chain situation, the, the big, hairy, audacious goal is often, you know, demoralizing. So if we say, I want to be 20 pounds lighter, that may not be as good a, a, an intermediate goal as saying, you know, what if I lost five pounds so I could slip into those blue jeans again or that shirt again? And 
And so the same principle is true in organizations. If you can give people a destination postcard of a short-term intermediate destination, then maybe they're going to be more likely to change. So, so one entrepreneur that I ran into had a business installing very elaborate kids' play structures in the homes of upscale, wealthy neighborhoods. And, and so his folks would be in these constant situations where they would be working on a project for two or three weeks to install this elaborate play structure. And he would get customer complaints that his people weren't very good at managing that customer relationship. Hmm. So, you know, they would show up because the part had come in and they would spend a few hours working in the backyard, but the customer never knew when they were going to be there or when they were going to be gone. And what this entrepreneur had done is he had started having conversations with his folks about uh, about having a customer service mindset. Now, you think about an abstract phrase yeah. that is unlikely to, to give people any direction about yeah. where they should be heading. Yeah. It's be be nice. Be nice. Be, be nice. Yeah, we tell our kids, <laughs> be nice. Be polite. Um, and so in a workshop setting with a bunch of other small business people, the, the other other CEOs, it's easier to see it when it's not your company. But the other CEOs were saying, well, you're, you're giving people all these abstract instructions about you know, customer service mindset. Can you tell me one aspect of what it would be to have a customer service mindset? He said, well, you know, if people, if my folks would just knock on the door, ring the doorbell every time they go to a customer house and say, you know, we're going to be here for three hours this time, we're going to be here 45 minutes this time, he said, I think that would do a lot to improve customer relationships. Now, think about how much more achievable it seems right. for frontline employees mm-hmm. to knock on that door every time than to have your your top leader, your the CEO of your company saying, I, you need to achieve more of a customer service mindset. The customer service mindset blurs your mind. The knocking on the door all of a sudden frees up your mind because that's something you can achieve. That's a destination postcard that you can hit. Yeah, I, I, I actually like to tell people, it's like telling people play a game, but not giving them any rules. Well, first, off, right. first off, it'll be chaos, but it, but, it, but it also won't ever be any fun because there's no way to win. And so, you know, by, by setting the rules up, you give them a way to win. Exactly. That's yeah. perfect. So you just mentioned the, uh, the, the workshop word. So um, I, I know that you are doing... Um, some coursework at Stanford uh, along switch. Uh, do you have some some events or programs that people can attend uh, after they've read your book and and uh, and want to do more? Yeah, we we actually have a book tour set up for the switch launch. We're going to be in seven different cities around the country talking about change and meeting a group of people that are interested in change. And so, if you log on to the website at heathbrothers.com. You can get information about that tour and also a lot of more resources for applying the material and switch in a business context. Right. Well, it's always a pleasure to meet with you. We've kind of exhausted uh, uh, the, the time for this show, but uh, hopefully we can uh, visit again or hopefully we'll, we'll bump into each other out there on the road. And uh, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. You can find tons of information at heathbrothers.com. Thanks again, Chip. Thanks for having me, John. Take care. This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast was brought to you by GoToWebinar, where you can increase your reach and have unlimited webinars for one low rate. Visit GoToWebinar.com and start your free 30-day trial today.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.